What's up, everybody? This is Eric Torenberg with Maker Stories, and I am recording this intro from the San Francisco airport. Uh, today, the episode is with Jessica Lesson and from the information, and it's all about journalism. I've long feared that the economic journalism reward whoever is the quickest and most incendiary, and not those who are the most thoughtful and rigorous. And as a result, what's encouraged is gossip and drama instead of debate and reflection. Now, how can business models incentivize quality journalism that goes beyond clickbait? page views, and the noise, to accentuate the noise that we see in journalism, I'm recording this from the airport. Jessica Lesson, who runs the news site The Information, proposes an interesting model, pay for it, by a not cheap yearly subscription. I'm a subscriber, and happy I am. Jessica spent eight years at the Wall Street Journal, so she knows about good reporting, and she knows all about the good and bad in traditional media institutions. We talk about the news industry, what makes a great journalist, and much more regarding media and the information. All right, here's Jessica. You graduated Harvard and spent eight years at Wall Street Journal? Yep. Like, did you want to be a journalist for life at that point? Definitely one of those people who caught the bug early in uh, sixth or seventh grade. My English teacher was in charge of the newsletter that went out, and I got roped into editing it and... uh, just didn't leave. I get the sense that young journalists are always really controlling. <laughs> they like want to tell the story, or they want to like, I don't, like stand up for something. I don't, <laughs> is that unfair? No, I mean I think journalists, and it's so hard, particularly today in today's day and age. It's such a broad group of people who are journalists, but there there is certainly a breed of person, and I am probably guilty of being of this breed <laughs> that you know had a I, idealistic bent early mm-hmm. on, and you know watched. Um, all the presidents met a few two times or something like that. But, you know, I always thought it was this awesome profession because you didn't have to pick a profession. You could just keep learning about new things. And over time, those new things just happened to be more and more about technology for me. And when I started at the journal, they needed um, someone to write about not just the big tech companies that had been around, around for a while, but the new emerging stuff. So I started doing that and... Um, over those eight years, covered Google, Yahoo, Facebook, Twitter, Apple, many of the media companies, and really saw firsthand the tr- the disruption going on in the media business. Um, but also, what increasingly seemed to me like a media industry and a news industry that had sort of lost its way. I think so many publications became obsessed with online advertising and in turn traffic and page views and reaching the broadest possible audience. And the journalism I loved was the journalism that was valuable to a defined audience that could actually make an impact because it wasn't trying to go to a low common denominator for the sake of a business model that wasn't even really paying the bills. And so I got very excited about seeing the demand out there in the professional world for in-depth tech news, whether it was the story behind the story or the analysis, or just something different than the 19 stories that churn out on the same topic every day. And I I just sort of came to believe that if you wanted to do that in a very focused way without all the other distractions of big news organizations and all the metrics they're accountable to, you know, a startup was the best way to do it. When did you have, or the first inkling that you wanted to start something? You know, not that long before I left, actually. And so um, I really had been very passionate about new ideas in the news business and and had probably floated way too many of them to my bosses up at the (laughs) Journal over the years. But, you know, I left in the summer of um, 2013, and it wasn't really until late winter, early spring that... This went from an idea in the back of my head to really in the front of my mind. And so it happened pretty quickly. This wasn't something I'd been mulling over for years. And so when you were you know, spending eight years, were you were just focused on doing like great reporting? You were, were you stewing inside that the newspaper wasn't moving fast enough? or that? Not really. I mean, I was always very focused on the stories. And even to this day as an entrepreneur and... You know, when I wake up in the morning excited about something, it's often a story that I'm thinking about. Um, And and, um, to me, that's still what really motivates me. I did increasingly have ideas like, well, why is all the data team in New York? Could we hire a data person in San Francisco? You know, stuff like that. Or how could we be more relevant to 
business leaders earlier in their careers who maybe don't feel the same connection to the finance part of the Wall Street Journal, those kinds of things. But um, and, and to be fair, the leaders at the journal were that first conversation was always great. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they always wanted the idea in the door, but then it couldn't go anywhere. Which journalists did you grow up or when you were in college or even as you started writing, did you really admire or see yourself becoming or? I don't think there was like any one in particular or groups. I just would read mostly the Times in the journal and wish I could write kind of yeah. stories like that. I mean, like a lot of, I think all journalists go through this phase of um, sort of romanticizing over being a foreign correspondent. Yeah. And, and I definitely went through that. Um, but it, uh, Increasingly, when I thought, okay, I could move to India, I was thinking, well, I'd be writing about tech in India or right. tech in China. And do journalists go through a phase where, like, oh, maybe I could be Dave Brooks, or maybe it could be Dave Remnick, or maybe it could be the ex- this person? Like, maybe it could. You know. I think some do, and and yeah. so like Remnick or, um, you know, I, I guess I, I I still very much admire Ken Oletta mm-hmm. because I yeah. think you know I've always loved business journalism, and and he's had this way of telling great stories about people that that have business significance. I, I was never as drawn to the sort of columnists, although mm. I loved reading them, but I yeah. the, the sort of news or newsier side really appeals to me. Yeah, some people, I, I think sometimes it's about the individual reporter and sometimes the brand. I mean, news organizations, you know, when you grow up reading these papers and you just look at the breadth of what they cover every day and it's just like pretty remarkable and yeah. still is, even though it's changed a lot. So it's 2013. You're thinking you, you must start your own thing. You leave the leave Wall Street Journal. Who do you kind of admire at this point in the media landscape? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what does it look like? What? Yeah. So there was a lot of great things out there to look at. One that I thought a lot about was Politico. Mm-hmm. So Politico, the sort of core to our idea was that it was better to be loved and indispensable to a smaller group to begin with than the whole universe. And over time, if you kick it out of the park and are really valuable to this core group, I think there are concentric circles of audience that you can be valuable to. So I don't see it as picking a niche as much as a focus that you can grow from. And um, so I looked a lot at brands that had done that. And I think Politico was a wonderful example and talked to a lot of people there who were very, very early on and... You know, I know just as a lay reader, last election, I found myself reading them more and more, whereas, you know, the insiders in, in politics and in the Beltway had been following them obsessively for years. And so um, in terms of an audience model, I really um, admired what they did and have tried to learn a lot from it. What was your opinion of BuzzFeed and Vice mm-hmm. and some of these? Yeah, new- I think they're all interesting. I, I think they're very different businesses. And actually, every day I... I mean, of course, we're a news organization, but we just, to me, do not feel like a news organization in the sense of the metrics that are meaningful to us are not what ad-based scale businesses care about. Um, you know, I think BuzzFeed and Vice have been rock stars at their models. I think the question is, you know, how big are those models and do they build multi-billion dollar businesses or something that's still substantial but a little bit short of that Um, but they're both great examples of knowing your audience being fairly relentlessly focused on your audience and learning quickly and and iterating you know that's something else you get a lot of advice when you start a company and some that I think has resonated the most is you don't actually know exactly what's going to work and so the muscle you need to develop is learning for as you go and and starting quickly and I think in terms of, you know, those two have, have done that right. and, you know, put Vox in there too, to such a degree that also is really inspiring. Had you been entrepreneurial kind of throughout, or is this kind of your first big? Yeah, I was not entrepreneurial at all. Good People say there's kind of a tension between a great like journalist and a great either manager or a great business person. Yeah. How have you thought about you know, becoming a successful entrepreneur. It's fine. I've thought of it as reporting my way to becoming a successful entrepreneur. So as a journalist, I would hope that one skill I have is asking the right questions to the right people. Um, That's basically how I get information, verify information and decide what's important. And I think it's actually pretty natural to translate that to questions like, how should we structure our team? What cadence is great for one-on-ones? what kind of feedback do I need from the team? You know, the whole sort of checkbox. Um, the difference, of course, is decision-making. 
when you're a reporter, you go through that cadence, but aren't constantly making a million decisions a day. And so I would say the first couple of months, I was sort of consumed by the stress of decision making. And, and then once you sort of realize and learn slightly how to prioritize and what matters, I, th- I think that helps a lot. But for some people, they might be intention, but I think the best entrepreneurs are just always learning. And mm-hmm. I think the best journalists are too. Have you learned a little bit of everything or have you kind of hired to compensate for things that you may not have a ton of experience with? Yeah, um, hopefully a little bit of both. I mean, I think in this phase, year one, so we're probably 15 months old now. And I think that period was really focused a lot on what is in my wheelhouse, which is the content and the stories. And we now have three engineers who are sort of also driving a lot of the product roadmap as well as, you know, with some broad guidance from me. But mm-hmm. getting them in position has allowed me to offload more of that. The sales side for us is just something we're starting to invest in now. We've been lucky to have very strong organic growth, which is continuing. And we want that to stay strong because it's a sign that we're on the right track. But there... I think I'll be looking for someone I, I can offload to because if you can't focus or prioritize, right. you'll you'll die. And it's not a it's not a small sale. It's three hundred fifty dollars. Uh, three ninety nine. Yeah. Three ninety nine a year. A year and a dollar and nine cents a day, <laughs> just to put it in yeah, perspective. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, for amazing quality news. But there were a lot of skeptics in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's still a lot of skeptics. Absolutely. How would, how did you pick that number? And what do you think about it? Looking back, I'm surprised how well it turned out because I think in some ways pricing, you know, you can ask people, you can survey and it's um, a very abstract thing that that it's hard to really know. We picked it because, you know, it was basically on par, slightly more expensive than the Wall Street Journal, depending on what promotions were running on par with research projects GigaOM and Business Insider had at the time, which were completely different in terms of content, but kind of going after this audience of a professional that's looking for news that's going to give them certain value. And, you know, for us, people often ask, well, did you think about how do you decide whether to charge or not charge? And it's sort of the wrong question because our whole vision was to build a publication that would be valuable to an audience at a certain price reflective of the price point, right? We think that that is the differentiator, having success be growth and paying subscribers who believe that what you're writing is worth that amount and holding yourself to that bar is how we think we compete, period. And mm-hmm. so um, it was important for it to be at a price that kind of felt premium so that we could focus all our energies out of sheer necessity on delivering premium content. And it was you know, within a small range, just sort of a, a shot in the dark within that sort of premium price point. We did go back and forth about whether to have a monthly option, which we do um, for 39 bucks. And, you know, that's sort of the way to to try us out. And, you know, the beginning of every article is free and, and often a lot of our data is. So, so people can get a sense, but that monthly has been one way that people have sampled. But by and large, the, the annuals are really where, where people are, are going. And I think we feel really good about it. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier, first, you know, start with, with an audience, the political start politics that you, you have it in tech, and a lot of people are asking you, where are you going next, or what's the next vertical? What's, what's your response to that? Yeah, we think tech is the vertical. Yeah. I mean, our thesis is that the best way to understand the way the world is going from a business perspective is to follow the technologies, the people leading the industry, and that, you know, if you're in the auto industry or retail um, knowing what's going on in tech is going to give you an advantage in your business. And, you know, much in the same way the journal started covering Wall Street and then used that base to broaden its influence and relevance, we, we are excited about doing the same thing with tech at, at the core. What is success to you? Like, you're going to put, you know, the next amount of years or decade or whatever, a serious amount of time into this. Mm-hmm. How do you judge your own success? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, this will be the last job I ever have. I just so believe and I'm so excited by building a news organization that that sort of matters and is of consequence and making people smarter in the world. And so, um, you know, that to me is the most exciting thing and the most satisfying thing. And I feel incredibly lucky to be doing that. You know, it's interesting in terms of 
the, the, the nearer term benchmarks of success. And, and right now we at the team are, and there are 11 of us now, are all just focused on momentum and growth and are we going in the right direction? Um, you know, our, our business is doing very well financially, but it's more, you know, the numbers matter. The good thing about a business is the financial numbers are tied to the growth numbers very directly when you just have a subscription mm-hmm. business. But, um, you know, the things that I look for in a successful year and setting our goals are, you know, growth and are we keeping it up? Or are we accelerating it in certain ways? And, you know, one of the things that's really nice, I mean, we still are a very, very small publication and um, have limited brand awareness, but even today's world, when you're writing hard-hitting stories about tech, you know, people are reading our stuff and we have an awareness that's far beyond um, the 11 people in San Francisco. And as a journalist, and I think all the journalists on the team feel this way, success is when you write a story that changes someone's mind about something or makes Mm. them think about something differently or helps them get something done. Uh, And if we're achieving that on a daily basis, like, I think that's all we can really ask for, so. And in terms of how big, do you guys have venture investment or, or plan to have a venture investment? Or, and how, how many people have you know, $300, you know, $400 to spend yeah. on news? I self-funded the company so that we could just control our own destiny. Um, so we have no plans or needs for investors now. But we're also incredibly opportunistic and ambitious. And mm. so um, if things came along that we were excited about, we would jump at them. I don't know. I mean, the journal has millions of paying subscribers. Yeah. FT has hundreds of thousands. So, you know, I, I don't think there's a real low cap on this. I, I think that um, the audience of professionals that are willing to spend a dollar and nine cents today to to help them make way more than a dollar and nine cents a mm-hmm. day is is pretty big. Um, we have subscribers in more than fifty countries. What do you think you've done so far that has led to it being as big as it is right now? Um, hiring great reporters. I mean, that's what it's about. And if you compare us to other businesses, you know, our product isn't something that we toil on for months and then release and milk the growth out of and refine. Our product is the articles we write every single day. And Mm -hmm. and those articles are written by Amir, Reed, Martin, Tom, and Stephen, who are just awesome reporters and who we hope can do more excellent work because of the culture and alignment we have with the business. You know, these are reporters who don't spend half of their day chasing the same news as everyone else. They're exclusively focused on trying to make those stories that stand out. You know, when you sort of do the pros and cons of starting a business and go through that early entrepreneurial stage, the calculus for me was, do I think that we can build the ideal company for this type of reporter to be successful in, to be valued in. And that I think is the most important thing. Most important thing, get amazing writers. And then the second part, how did you get early on people to pay that much for Mm -hmm. it? You Um, wrote stories that they wanted to read. Mm -hmm. Um, I laughed today. So this morning we had one of our in-depth profiles on um, Shridhar at Google who runs ads. So he's literally the most important executive in the online advertising world and most people can't even spell his name. And, you know, every time we do one of these in-depth stories, Business Insider does the five takeaways from the information profile, you know, which is great. Sure. I mean, and sure, those are five takeaways. There are 55 others in the story, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, some people are going to see this story and think, I got to know this guy and, and I want to be, you know, I want to be in position to get the next story. And so to some degree, all of us reporters had people who knew our writing, but none of us are, are rock stars who, who carry, you know, massive, massive audiences. And so it's really been the word of mouth off the content. I think that that's basically it. I mean, we, there was probably an email blast or two within the Mm -hmm. first month, but that's it. And also you did something interesting, which we've done as well, Mm -hmm. is you, you kind of contained growth in that only certain uh, percentage of people or certain types uh, could comment. Mm-hmm. Yep. How did you think about that strategy? Yeah, absolutely. So commenting now is open to all our Got subscribers, it. but um, we with commenting, we really wanted to build a product that would give people comments worth reading. Mm-hmm. To do that, we asked a few dozen people who were um, very engaged subscribers like Mark Andreessen, James Murdoch, Dustin Moskowitz, if 
you know, they'd be willing to comment when something struck them. And some have been more active than others, but we, um, we found that it did get a very thoughtful kind of comment. So if we would write about SaaS accounting, for example, yeah. you know, the, the CEO of Zero would comment with like how he thinks about accounting for his, you know, company. And, and um, you know, the same is true on sort of topic after topic. On We had a mobile payments story on Apple where the former head of Google's mobile payments really engaged in some of the challenges Google faced in a way that I think was really revelatory. So we still now, if people want to comment, we, they just need to let us know because we like to have a little bio and headshot yeah. so that people sort of know the identities of of people they're reading from. But that's one area, I mean, I just get so excited about thinking of putting our foot on the gas and that in the sort of months and years to come because the quality of the comments is, for in some cases, as valuable as a story, if not mm-hmm. more so. News and inf- everything we write has to be accurate and well-informed, but we don't have all the answers. Yeah. And some really successful media companies have created that sort of discussion-like to and fro with their subscribers or readers. And so something we've done, I mean, we survey our subscribers um, about what they want to learn about. Um, we ask them to submit questions and then as best we can, we'll just churn out all the all the information we know to be valuable. Um, and that's a sort of type of story or editorial product that I think if you without a subscription base, it's much harder to really create new types of content as well. What characteristics make either a great journalist slash reporter or someone who could be a great mm. journalist? What do you think about that? We we have taken some of the top reporters, tech reporters from the journal. Um, I just think those are sort of different people than some of the bloggers, yeah, yeah. for example. Yeah. Um, it's a couple things. I mean, I think the ability to you have some sort of special superpower, right? Whether it's being a real digger and being able to get information that other people just don't have or being an incredibly out-of-the-box thinker and being able to see things that people don't have. I think what you don't want is people who are in the middle. Um, People who are very good at quickly covering the news of the day. I mean, there's a a role for that in our ecosystem, but but that doesn't move the needle for us. Um, I think you, you have to be dogged and intrepid and um, pretty tenacious because, uh, you know, companies are very accustomed to dealing with reporters and and very deft at getting out of situations. But, you know, even more so, I mean, people would disagree with me on this, but I think that sort of temperament and attitude is more important than 10 years covering tech because I think it's also more unique. And so um, smart reporters can jump in and get up to speed about the industry fairly quickly. Um, our most recent reporting hire was a former investigative sports journalist at the journal, Reid Abergadi, who um, broke open the Lance Armstrong doping wow. scandal. And now he's writing about tech and you know, his superpower is, is again, just that sort of digging. But I think there's also room and, and I know I sort of gravitate towards reading this stuff too for just the ideas that you haven't heard before, mm-hmm. kind of out of the box stuff. and. And that's that's very different from one type of reporter, and so we're we're sort of trying to get a complement of lots of different ones. Did you see Felix Salmon's uh, "Don't Be a Journalist"? I don't know if I saw that one. I do read a lot of Felix's yeah. stuff. I probably did, and I probably sure sure. What do you tell young aspiring journalists? Oh, Is it I good tell time them to be a yes. I tell them it's best time to really? be a journalist, and I I say that because I believe it in my bones. Like if you're in the business of wanting to write articles that change the way people think about the world. There are so many options there. And yes, there are a cohort of companies that are struggling to find out the right business model and many of them won't be around, but there are plenty um, that that will get it and are getting it. And um, I think that that, you know, everyone says, well, now everyone's a journalist because you're tweeting and posting. And so how do you stand out? But we find time and time again that in that noisy echo chamber, the quality work just, it rises to the top yeah. and it gets turbocharged by the noise in the ecosystem. You know, Business Insider summarizing in five points our main articles is just an example of how, yeah. you know, the impact that, that things can have. And so I think, um, I think it's a wonderful time and, 
you know, you do you have to be a little scrappy and resourceful to find a good opportunity? You know, absolutely. But you also have to be scrappy and resourceful to be a good journalist. And mm-hmm. so I think it is an awesome time. I, I do worry that, you know, there are certain journalism schools and, and certain sort of memes and themes that are sort of are, are not that helpful. I mean, there's a theme in journalism where you kind of have to tweet all day long to be relevant and when I see a journalist who tweets all day long, I think they're not reporting all day long right. or they're sitting at their desk instead of going to meet people. So there's a lot of things that can distract, but the great work just, it spreads like wildfire. You know, there are a lot of different kinds of publications now these days, and, and there will continue to be a turnover of them. And I have no doubt there are going to be places where people can build awesome careers. You mentioned earlier that there's a if not at the information, there's a role for people who could come up with content very quickly. That seems to be almost the dominant role, or there's the role, and it sometimes pushes out people who who they see themselves as making really great journalism, but there's just so much. But you say so much noise, but you say no, it'll, well, it'll think, find a way. You know, I don't think it necessarily pushes it out. I mean, I, I just, I look at our business, right? Yeah. I mean, if we, people wouldn't pay for us and grow, we, you know, we wouldn't be growing and accelerating our growth if people thought there was just too much noise so they were going to like quit news. Yeah. I think instead the reaction is there's so much out there, I need to find stuff that's actually worth my time and when I do, I'm going to hold on to it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, our, our business, you know, we have an audience that um, they're professionals and, and they come to us in large part to help their businesses and so they're not going to just turn their back on content that could be helpful to them and sort of quit content. Um, and at the end of the day, I think the the sort of having the urgency of having to rise above is, is what will pull and push our industry forward because it will shift journalists from this mindset of how do I get this commodity news on the site faster than anyone else to... How can I get my audience to keep coming back to me? And you can also have so many, just from a product side, you know, our subscribers get emails when we write our stories. And so they're letting us into their inbox, which in terms of a distribution model is Mm -hmm. way better than throwing a stack of papers in a Starbucks and hoping someone picks them up. Or, you know, they're really letting us interrupt their day and lives. And that is so cool as a journalist too. Mm -hmm. And to be able to really know your audience, um, so I think all, all the tools are there, and I think the history of the media business has been more noise and more content, and you know people still watch Game of Thrones yeah. or you know whatever the sort of premium stuff is. So you want to make people smarter with the information, and you've been in the media landscape for a long time. Do you feel that, uh, by and large, we are getting smarter? When you look at yeah. you know, Twitter or the news every day, or how, how do you feel yeah. what, what's going to happen? I do believe that we're getting smarter. I think like humanity is in a good place. I mean, and, and I say that knowing that there's more crap out there than ever. It's harder to tell the fake news from the real news. But I guess my confidence in saying that is my confidence in the reader mm-hmm. and the confidence in the consumer that, you know, even even your average consumer who's who isn't thinking about this top of mind you know, there's good stuff out there. It's getting spread and it's getting exposure. And I think um, people are smart and they're discerning and they're, you know, on the margins times when people aren't being well served, but people can think for themselves. And I think there's a lot that lets them do that. I think the more there are organizations out there that, you know, judge themselves and their success, not just based on, you know, based on quality over quantity, the mm. better I think yeah. that will happen. But um, I think, you know, there's more ways than ever to read information and also to discuss that information with friends and communities. And that's also how we learn and form opinions. Um, so I, I don't think it's doomsday. What are you not positive about? Or what do you, what, is there something in yeah. the landscape that you are concerned about yeah. or skeptical of or negative on? I mean, I'm, this probably sounds counterintuitive. I'm concerned how many publications there are out there that are not subscription business models. I mean, mm-hmm. I am, um, I am sort of hoping that people follow. And it's not even our lead. I mean, all we're doing is picking up on the historical business model that has served the yeah. news business for so well. But I worry when I see and hear things like what happened to GigaOM when news organizations couldn't meet expectations set by investors 
set unrealistic and unfocused goals, um, lost sight of their value, and then are out of business. Um, and I, I think that it's very easy to get on this treadmill of, okay, well, our traffic was this and our bosses care about it being here and we have to get it there. And I think the same is true of events. It's very easy to say, you know, we're making all this money from events now. If we want to be making that money five years from now, well, what do we have to do? We have to have more events or, you know, whatever it is. And so um, I think that a lot of the, the sort of newer digital only publications are, are still going to struggle, maybe not this year, next year, or, or just they're relying too much on revenue streams that are um, short hits and not yeah. really sustainable. You know, on the big company side, I mean, I still think that the big media organizations and news organizations are, are doing phenomenal jobs covering what they do. Um, when I see a publication like The Journal get obsessed over live blogging every tech event under the sun, you know, that always also worries me because, you know, that's not what the paper's core competence is. It's not what their really talented reporters are going to be motivated by. That worries me a bit too. The other thing, which I've written about a little bit lately, and I hope it's not doesn't appear ranty when I do, but um, I continue to see media organizations sort of rush towards the new flashy tech platform of the day, whether it's Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook, and the like, and and really do a this rush to do deals with them for the sake of distribution yeah. or eyeballs and. Um, Just as air quotes around. Yes, those my air quotes around distribution, which is a horrible word. And, you know, I'm not blind to the fact that audiences are fragmenting and, and you want to have your content not just on your site, but in other places. But I think, by and large, companies do a lot of those deals out of, like, FOMO, not wanting yeah. to miss out on the big press release when their right. competitors are going to be there. And I, I'm just so skeptical of that. And that's largely from covering Google for many, many years at a time when news organizations were rushing to, you know, give Google News preferential treatment and thinking that the magically revenues would flow back to them and, and it didn't and um, it was sort of wasted energy. And I, I think that I don't know how to sort of disabuse media companies of that notion that, um, you know, they should really prioritize that over prioritizing building their own audiences. Mm -hmm. What do you think about what happened at the New Republic, mm. which is kind of, yeah. uh, you know, old media, new media, yeah. meeting each other? A lot of it was exaggerated by a press that's always looking for a good sensationalized mm. story, it, if I'm honest. I mean, I think the idea of just pitting Chris as this caricature of tech because he was involved in Facebook early on and, and those older staff writers is sort of the paragon of traditional journalism. Um, I, I, I just don't buy into that concept. I think, you know, what it tells me is that it's very hard to pull off the transition from a more traditional organization to sort of a leaner, meaner, um, smaller, more digitally focused organization. And I think Chris and others probably stumbled a bit in in messaging that or executing that, but I believe that that is the right strategy. I'm obviously trying to build one of those organizations, but I think it showed how hard it is. Um, and you have a lot of different stakeholders who are gonna react in different ways. Um, but I, I was really disturbed by the coverage of it more than anything, mm -hmm. because it's so easy to, to jump on a narrative and then opine of what yeah. you think it says without having any understanding of the underlying business economics yeah. of, you know, why maybe certain decisions were made. And, um, you know, I think a lot of it would be in the numbers. Mm -hmm. In in 10 years or in 20 years, do you see the Wall Street Journal and New York Times still being a leading voice in journalism? Or do you see something like BuzzFeed or, mm -hmm. or maybe the information? Or, or, yeah. You know, I mean, I think, the, like? I think the journal and the Times will still continue to have very strong brands. I think your average consumer is going to read a lot of different things. I think they'll be reading BuzzFeed. I think they'll be reading information. I think they'll, you know, it, it's going to be more about, there'll be so many different ways to get content. It's not like you have to choose which full hog thing you're buying. And I, I do think the brands that will be the most successful will be the ones that do have some differentiated value. You know, the Journal and the Times increasingly look like the same paper. That sort of gives the reader the choice of, okay, well, which one am I going to read? And what is there that I can find there that I can't find anywhere else? And 
again, I guess I kind of go back to TV and TV channels a little bit. You know, Netflix has House of Cards. You know, HBO has a lot of different things. We And so I think the franchises that have the content or the news businesses that have the franchises that are really differentiated will be the ones that I think will be really successful. But there, there's no doubt the big guys are, they're, mm-hmm. they're not going away. You spent a lot of time in, in New York mm-hmm. and yep. San Francisco yep. and, you know, in the media world and also the tech world. What is your perception of what leaders in, in tech know and how they communicate with with kind of mainstream America or, yeah. or politics or Wall question. Street? What's your thought? Yeah. So I think the tech leaders believe that one of the reasons they're successful is they think differently. Take a Steve Jobsism, but you know they they pride themselves on not really caring about how the real world works because innovation is what happens when you forget about that, right? The mm-hmm. theory goes, and and I think there's something to that, but but I also think it, it's short sighted in the fact that their businesses are, have the potential and are transforming every industry, and I think the tech leaders who are most effective are going to be the ones who are most pragmatic about that and who don't, um, you know, give regulators lip service or, you know, I, I'm amazed what disdain um, there is in the tech industry for finance and bankers still. And actually, when I go and go to New York and meet with people on Wall Street, they say, why do tech people hate us so much? Right. And it's still, I mean, it's a caricature, but I think there's something there. And so, I think that the tech companies that can figure that out sooner rather than later will be more successful. And but but I don't actually I don't think it will change. Like in some ways, I, I kind of feel like the Gulf is growing, and that maybe some of the there's a little lip service to figuring out how people work. But when you when you get people in private rooms and they're talking about you know how they really think the world should go, I think the tech industry is is deeply concerned that you know traditional and incumbent industries and regulators will, will get in the way of the innovation that's possible. And so I, I think this is a tension that will will only be exacerbated. Do you think that someone like Sheryl Sandberg or Jeff Wiener will run for president? That's a good question. <laughs> I don't. I think it gets back to, you know, while some people maybe have certain types of political aspirations, you know, people in the tech world don't view that as the most exciting way to even change the world, right? Mm. Which is actually kind of interesting because I think there's no doubt that policy and politics can change the world and improve people's lives. But, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people in tech who who think that building the next Facebook can do that many times over. And, mm-hmm. and you know, maybe they're, they're right to some ways. So um, I think there's always people who are interested in politics and interested in getting to know political leaders more from sort of power, influence, yeah. knowledge thing. But I, I would be surprised if any actually made the leap and put their hat in the ring to run. Interesting. And Ford.us was like an interesting little experiment mm-hmm. that in, in some ways worked and in some ways didn't work. Yeah. Um, in terms of just seeing how, how the intersect. And, and Jason Coleman, mm-hmm. he got, was in new position now. Um, or is, is some position at the White House? Yeah, I'm not sure which one. Is he, there's a bunch. I mean, there's yeah. like Megan Smith, and then yeah. all the data scientists, and um, there. I mean, there is back and forth, and I think yeah. that the policy and politics world is obviously trying to pull in talent from tech. But right. um, I, it, maybe this is a too pessimistic, but maybe not. I mean, I think. They are ultimately different industries with different objectives and different goals, and they can kind of learn from each other, but I, I think it's still more surface level. Yeah. Interesting. Do I sometimes think about uh, the ability or not ability for the tech world to kind of describe what's happening to, to the rest of the world? Mm-hmm. And as that goes even further and changes in, in a few years, like self driving cars or whatever, like, yeah. and all these jobs are lost, do you? envision some sort of like larger clash between hey what's like what's happening in Silicon Valley like, that's happening too fast or that's you know I don't get it or like some sort like what Wall Street was a few years ago you know might happen yeah absolutely I do I do, think, I do. Yeah. and I think again it sort of it runs current to this idea of convergence that, right. that we're sort of trained to believe that everyone's coming together but in some of these attitudes about the way the world is going I think there are huge differences and 
you know, I think uh, I think the new season of Silicon Valley on HBO <laughs> is showing up soon, and and you know that it's funny. It's like people here watch it. It's like oh, that's kind of funny. It makes fun of us, and people even friends in LA watch that, and they're like, is that really how you guys? And you know, to some degree, it is how the world out here works. So. Um, I think there will kind of remain big gaps. And I mean, you identify self-driving cars, health, medicine. I mean, these are areas where, you know, I would say that one of the biggest areas of clashing between tech and and the rest of the world, if you will, or or policy has been privacy over the past Mm -hmm. couple of years. And I think that's going to look like, you know, the tip of the iceberg of the kind of issues that will come to the fore when you're talking about um, self-driving cars or manipulating DNA. Um, mm. And I, I think it, it's going to look like peanuts. I'm reading The Circle right now. Uh-huh. Dave Eggers. Yeah, I read it. So I'm like particularly alarmist yeah. <laughs> uh, about what's going to happen. Um, but yeah, it's, um, and it just seems that there isn't that much you know, being talked about in terms of like what happens when, when the, that stuff comes. And maybe we just, even something, for example, like uh, Meerkat Periscope, the live streaming yeah. of everything. I went to a Periscope stream the other day, and it was someone stalking their ex outside their. Like, it was called stalking my ex oh, while her boyfriend yeah. is there. Yeah, and there were like hundreds of people, and I was like, "This is gonna cause really perverse be- behavior." Yeah, um, and that, I'm sure that's just the tip of the. You know, what happens when uh, some sort of attack is like on Periscope? You know, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. It's interesting. I've been thinking about this topic a lot, and I wish I remembered the book someone recommended to me, which I don't. But it's about. The history of how like the human population adapts to new technologies that, um, I guess, challenge or erode privacy um, over time. Because obviously this is a continuum, yeah. right? And we've gone from, <laughs> and we're only still on the continuum. And, and, and I think the upshot was that, you know, as a society, we, we sort of, we get acclimated to it in some way. Mm-hmm. And, and that we kind of, you know, it's this new and scary thing, but then it maybe it becomes a little bit less scary, and and then we kind of forget about a world where we weren't on our phones all day using technology that could locate yeah. us to a pin. And <laughs> and so I just I don't see anything kind of really stopping that overall trajectory. Um, and you know, there there will be rules that that are important to try to mitigate it where it can. But um, you know, and I hope as a society and as news organizations, we can write about that stuff to at least force the conversations about kind of what we want to happen. But another one, drones, right? That comes up all the time. I mean, these things will be outside our windows and, you know, we're not all going to get drone proof glass Mm -hmm. or something. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you, you're, you as a journalist and the information serve among other things as, as a translator and as an explainer and as a, that will have an increasingly important role as this clash happened. Like someone will need to make sense of it. No. And at the journal, I was lucky enough to work with a bunch of people there on a privacy series we did called what they know. Um, that was a finalist for the Pulitzer. And it was, I remember it was sort of a, an interesting project because on one hand, a lot of it was just very explanatory about cookies and data sharing and, how you can piece together online profiles and actually go find people in real life, you know, who meet them. And there was this one reaction to it, which was like, duh, this is, we all know this, this is so boring and rudimentary. And there were a whole other cohorts of people for whom this was, you know, really made them think differently and question. And and I think it's important. One thing I hope that we as the information don't do is pander or write to or assume the values of of Silicon Valley, because I think, you know, we write for leaders in tech, finance, and media, but globally, and, you know, there are a lot of attitudes that people there share, but there's also a lot of people who question those. And and I think um, keeping in mind those readers as well, and, um, you know, I, I in my columns, I try to write about issues here that I think we sort of you know, aren't always in the Valley's best interest or just even talking about how we, we report on valuations and blow them out of proportion. And it's sort of a convention here, but I don't think, you know, has all these sort of adverse consequences. And so we, we try to we try to identify those things and, and write about them. And we find, you know, that they often resonate more than people think. I think mm-hmm. more people often have these questions on their mind or they 
or misgivings. Yeah. Um, but it can be very challenging as a journalist when you're surrounded by smart and charismatic people who deeply believe these views, you know, being able to step out of it and say, okay, well, well, what do we think or what issues does this raise? Did you see Kevin Roos's piece about uh, the Andreessen, like internal, like investing in one of its partners? Um, I don't think I saw it that. It started as that? kind of a uh, flame war on Twitter uh-huh. <laughs> um, with him and I think... Uh, oh, Balaji? Yeah, yeah. yeah. About, he just received a bunch of money. Yeah, for his new yeah, yeah. government thingy. Anyways, it, Kevin was trying to make a lot of analogies to how in other industries that's it's unfair to entrepreneurs for partners to invest in each. It's not like yeah. an equal market. Yeah. And they were trying to, people in tech were saying, no, we're not like other, you know, we yeah. operate just different. We're yeah. We're just totally not understanding of our world. But Kevin's really trying to understand, you know, it's just interesting how different cultures. I completely agree. And I don't buy this like tech is different. Right. And, yeah. and this is actually a theme that I'm incredibly interested in and have all sorts of ideas around. You hear it again, like why when it comes to conflicts of interest, when it comes to regulation, when it comes to, you know, thing after thing, tech is different, tech is different, tech is different. And sure, tech is, I mean, tech has its own dynamics. We fund companies here differently. We, you know, that leads to certain different types of board arrangements. But, you know, I I think if you think that, you're gonna get a rude awakening when the rest of the world decides that tech isn't that different. And, and, um, I, I'm trying to. I've been to a few talks that have actually been entitled like "Tech Exceptionalism," and I'm <laughs> just sort of stewing over those because um, I don't buy it, and I think the people who do buy it are are gonna, you know, get hit with something. And I also think that the tech industry, and this is true of a lot of industries, but I think it's a very unequal industry, right? I, I don't actually think that the tech world is very meritocratic. Many other industries aren't meritocratic either, but in, in technology, there's clearly huge advantages to the insiders that I think maybe we, we kind of appreciate and, and think about and know, but that um, I, I, I think the depths of which have not been explored. So that's the topic we're, we're really interested in. And what would you say is the biggest crux of like the misconception around tech meritocracy? Well, if you just look at private company investing, right? Yeah. And private company investing has always been, by definition, something that is accessible to a few. Even with what's going on in crowdfunding right now, and I mean, that's what it is, right? So the, the, a huge economic engine out here is not meritocratic. And I'm not saying it should be, actually. I mean, like, there are different types of investing that should be open to different kinds of people with different kinds of risks. But I think like the mere fact that it's perfectly fine and acceptable and even what's encouraged to you know, give opportunities to a very limited number of people to get in on a very small number of things. And I think as there's more and more wealth caught up in the private markets, you know, that's going to have consequences. You know, crowdfunding, I think, is sort of this ever, sort of this distraction or things people say to look, well, no, well, there is this mechanism for yeah. investing in the next great thing, but, you know, there isn't. And I don't really know yet if I think there should be or what that fully means, but... Um, you know, by the same token, sure, I mean, there are great companies that come out of nowhere with entrepreneurs who have no connections. The vast majority do not come right. that way. And they are um, shepherded and cultivated and trained and given resources to by, by people who are fairly well connected. And so there's a little bit of this, like, anyone can build mm-hmm. the next Uber. And, <laughs> and I, I don't think that's true. Gossip journalism in tech as it exists today. Is it problematic? Is it necessary? Is Gossip, you mean around like people and personalities? Yeah, or... and you've also yeah. been in some yeah. pieces, right? Yeah. Like Valleywag or, or oh, some of these. Valleywag, yeah. Yeah, some of these. It's just not interesting to me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, and I don't think it's interesting to so many readers out there. Um, again, if time is limited, inundated with content, Give them something that's actually worthwhile as opposed right. to something that's just kind of, you know, thrown out there for the sake of clicks. I mean, it is interesting. I do think in the past couple of years, like, readers have become more, um, you know, more aware of clickbait, more sort of suspicious of it. What publications are doing is more transparent in terms of their agendas. And, you know, it doesn't mean that we all don't like to 
you know, read something that's mildly entertaining from time to time. I mean, I go to BuzzFeed every day, you know, and so, and obviously, um, you know, there are different parts of my brain that are interested in different things, but, you know, the model of, you know, none of those places that have been pure gossip racks have, have done well and I think will be around in part because, you know, the vast majority of readers just don't really care. In an ideal world, what does the information look like in five years? Hopefully it's, you know, a team that's in the dozens or not hundreds, but, you know, a core group of awesome reporters and engineers and business people, um, largely based here, but also with a footprint around the world that's writing, you know, a fair number of stories every day that make people happy and smart. And, that, you know, I, I really don't think that there's some magic number out there when you get to X big, you've made it or you're mm. influential. You know, we don't really think about it that way. We want our readership to grow and we want um, our resources to be able to deliver those stories to grow. And as long as we're growing, I think we're going to be incredibly satisfied and, and motivated. Um, I do think we will feel very global, um, probably in terms of where we are, but also in what we cover. I mean, even with everyone, you know, we've, we've traveled to Asia a bit. We've, we've tried to be ahead of the curve on, on some of the, the apps in the app market out there. I really hope that we can do that because what, I think that is a really, really big opportunity. I wouldn't be surprised if our business model <laughs> looks very much the same. I mean, I think we, um, you know, want to continue to grow our community offline too. Um, and rather than have events as a separate revenue stream, we try to just convene our subscribers in different types of events that are valuable to them. Um, and I think that that's something that could really grow. And then I also think that community online, I mean, this idea of a publication just being a list of X stories that appear on some homepage and some tile is is very antiquated. And, and ideally what you sort of want is this stream of news and information and conversation that um, can deliver all sorts of value. Um, and that, that's something I actually think we can capitalize more on in, in the coming months, let alone years. But um, I, I don't think it will feel like a publication with a homepage, hopefully right. just more like a, a network of information, yeah. I guess. Sweet. Well, I've just subscribed as of like two days ago. Thank you, sir. So I'm ecstatic. What, uh, what final departing words would you like to leave our our listeners who are who are curious about learning yeah. more, where can they find you? Absolutely. You know, the information with- Jessica at the is the best way to reach me. And I would love to hear from you guys. Um, I'm also happy if you shoot me a note through that and listen to this podcast to give you guys a month free. Um, if, awesome. if people want to see what we're about, um, because we have a lot to learn from, from you guys too, as, as entrepreneurs and um, people in the trenches of the tech world. Um, so mostly I would just love to make the connection and get to know everyone better. Awesome. And I'm excited to, to collaborate with you. we got some exciting things upcoming Absolutely. and the information. Uh, so sweet. Just thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Eric. Cool.